Physical family? Church family, welcome. Good to see you. Some, some surprises this morning, too, and I love that. Folks, uh, as you know, I've been privileged to pastor here 30 years. And uh, oftentimes I'm asked, are you nervous when you get up? Sunday school teachers ask, they say they're terribly nervous at the time they're to begin their Sunday school class. And my response has always been, if I get to the place where I'm not nervous when I go into the pulpit, I'll quit. Well, I won't tell you, I'm not there. I was sitting here thinking, you know, one of the promises that we turn to for memorial services is that God will wipe away all tears when we're in his presence. And I have kind of wondered if he couldn't make an exception and help me this morning. (laughs) It is good to be with you. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please? to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Mr. Joe Stevenson, who's been at home with the Lord for a long time, but I remember him so vividly when he would sing a solo here at Wake Chapel, and he did it so many times, and in so many other places as well. He would stand at that pulpit, and right before he would sing, Mr. Joe would always say, breathe a little prayer for me. Ditto this morning. So many folks have said, Pastor, you're going to enjoy being retired. And something in me says, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. So many people have said that. I'm trying to take it by faith. Um, We've been asked, Louise and I have been asked, what are y'all going to do? Well, She's got a long list of places that she wants to see that I could never, I could never get, get there, I don't think. There's so many of them. So I'm not really sure what we're going to do, but I'm holding to some people here who said to me, you're going to enjoy being retired. You get up every morning, anytime you want to. You don't have to set a clock. You don't have to put on a tie. Uh, you can just do pretty much what you want. And I don't think any man who's ever retired done that. They have a, a, a to-do list uh, that someone who loves them has given them to get done. <laughs> God is good. God is good. Thank you. I'm going to refer to several of the passages this morning. I'm going to refer to the passage uh, a little bit further over in first, excuse me, Second Corinthians. I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians and then a number of other passages I'm going to give you a verse from. My subject for the morning is the judgment seat of Christ. What is it? What is it not? I believe this is, and it's titled in your worship folder this morning as the greatest incentive, and I believe it is. 
it is the greatest incentive for a child of God to know that one day we're going to stand before the Lord. Not in a matter of judgment, for all judgment for sin has been covered at the cross. And we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get to it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. It is more precious than silver or gold. It is without error. Any difficulty that we have in understanding is on our part, not on yours. I pray that the Spirit of God would enable me and all of us here to be blessed from the study of your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Someone once asked Daniel Webster, the great American statesman and orator, what was the greatest thought that had ever entered into his mind? After just a couple of moments, he looked at the person who'd asked him the question and said, the thought of my accountability to God. The great apostle Paul had much the same feeling The 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians contains a record of suffering almost unparalleled in the history of the church. There Paul recounts those things he had suffered to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and fulfill his ministry. It seems as though every conceivable form of suffering that could be imagined in anybody's mind... Had been devi- that had been devised, and Paul suffered those things. Don't do it now, but sometime you might want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and see what this man, this apostle, suffered in bringing the gospel and fulfilling his call. But if you were to ask Paul, why were you willing? What were you thinking, Paul? You were so willing, you never ran from any kind of, su- <clears throat> any kind of suffering. Why were you so willing to suffer like that for so long a time? I believe the Apostle Paul would have answered in the words of verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you will look there with me, please. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we might be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether it be good or bad. The apostle is revealing to us that great and compelling force in his life and in his experience, uh, his consuming ambition, his consuming passion was to be found pleasing to the Lord in every area of his life, in every moment of his life, and in every activity of his life. The apostle explains to us the importance of such an ambition. You will notice verse 10 begins with the word for. This gives us a word of explanation. And when the apostle says he made it his ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, he had a proper basis for such an ambition. Paul says, it's fitting that I should spend my life and make it my ambition to be accepted of him for. 
verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body with, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. It was impossible, impossible for the apostle to have any other ambition in his life other than to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he knew there would come a time when he would stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And I want us to look this morning at the judgment seat of Christ. First of all, from the standpoint of what it is not. There are three things here that I'd like to suggest to you that the judgment seat of Christ is not. First of all, there are those who feel that what Paul's talking about here in verse 10 is a judgment to which every believer will stand one final judgment to see whether or not he will be able to enter into heaven. But I need only to point out to show you the, the other side of this, that Paul is addressing believers in, the second, in, in, in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Those who have received an eternal habitation, those who have received a glorified body. You let your eyes glance back up to verse 1. That's where those things are spoken. He is, if you look at the context with me also, he is speaking to those who have experienced death swallowed up by life. He is addressing those who could confidently say, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So then, this is not a scene which takes takes place outside some supposed pearly gates to see if a Christian will finally be able to enter in. But this is a scene after the believer has been resurrected, translated, and glorified. There's a second erroneous view. This one says that the judgment seat of Christ is a time of punishment for sins committed by the believer after he became a Christian. It is supposed in this view that the blood of Christ takes care of all sin up to the time the believer dies, uh, comes, to, comes to Christ. But after he comes to Christ, he's pretty much on his own. Those sins are not dealt with we are told, except in this position, the punishment of sins is the judgment seat of Christ. That's what we are told. This view, however, severely limits the value of the death of Christ. When a person accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, God puts his sin away fully, finally, and completely. A child of God will never be called into account for his sins again. Never. Listen to the Bible. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103. Isaiah 38. Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Literally, that means behind the shoulder blades. You ever had an itch between your shoulder blades? You know how hard that is to get to? God says, I put your sins behind my back, between my shoulder blades. Never be called into account again. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more, Hebrews 8, and again, Hebrews 10. So there's one finer, final erroneous view that we need to be aware of, and that makes the judgment seat of Christ a Protestant purgatory. 
That is a punishment for sins that have not yet been confessed. They say that, those who hold this view say that all the other sins, if you've confessed them, fine. But the unconfessed sins, you'll be held into account, called into account here at this point. But again, this presupposes the fact that my sins have not been completely covered by the blood of the cross. It also presupposes that God's keeping a record of my sins. And sometime in the future, at this judgment seat, he will go through the litany of our sins. It is clearly opposed to the doctrine that we hold dear, the justification by faith. May I say again? You will never, as a Christian, you will never be, your sins will never be called into account again. The finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross keeps that from being true. You will never be called into account for your sins again. So those three things are things that we need to take note of because there are preachers in pulpits, there are Bible teachers, they're espousing these things. So what then is the judgment seat of Christ? What is it? Paul speaks of it. What is the judgment seat of Christ? I think that if I ask a few questions, it will help us to answer that one. When we use the word judgment, we immediately get the wrong idea. We read verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Right then, we have a problem. We think of guilt when we read verse 10. We think of a court scene where there's an august judge who's going to pass judgment. So at the very outset, we get a a picture in our minds anyway of uh, the presence of sin in our lives, even as believers. Instinctively, when we read verse 10 in that word judgment, we get the wrong idea. May I remind you once again, our sins will never be called into account when we come to Christ. Now, I must tell you something about a word that's used here. It's the word judgment, seat. We must all appear before, the, the word in the original text is bema. B-E-M-A, Bema. It was a familiar word to the Corinthians. We know that just outside the city of Corinth, there was a a large arena for athletic contests. And during the preparation for the contest, the people would build a a raised platform there uh, in a very prominent position in the stadium, and the judges were on the field during the games. But when a winner was determined, he was led before this raised platform, and that was called the bema. The Corinthian people would have known that instinctively. Immediately, they would have known that. The winner was determined and led to the platform, the bema, and there he was rewarded. We know also same kind of thing was true in Athens. It was called a judgment seat, but it was the bema, the word that 
the Athenians would have used would have been bima, a place of reward. Same thing as in Corinth. Games were, in the games, a winner was determined. And that winner was taken before this platform. And there he was rewarded. So Bema, to the people to whom the apostle was writing, Bema would have, the thing that would have come to their mind was, that's a place of reward. If you're at the Bema, you're going to be rewarded. When is the Bema? <clears throat> Paul says we must all appear there. When is it? There we must think a bit about the prophetic events that are yet to come. We read about them in the Bible. The next thing that will occur in God's prophetic program is spoken of as the rapture of the church. Someone said, we're not waiting for the undertaker. We're waiting for the uptaker. And that's true. The Lord will come. He will descend from heaven, and we will be called home if we are alive at that time. So we have the rapture of the church. Then on earth, there's what is called the tribulation period. Spoken of it extensively in Matthew and then again in Revelation. From the rapture, the tribulation period, there's the second advent of Christ. And then the millennium. And then the great white throne judgment. So where in all this does the Bema come? Well, in Luke chapter 14, we read, Thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Here reward and resurrection are spoken of together. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 teaches us that the resurrection is part of the rapture program. And so the reward must also be a part of that rapture period of time. So we rightly conclude that the Bema of Christ takes place immediately following the rapture of the church. What's the place of the Bema? It's hardly necessary to point out that it takes place in heaven. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, We shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then from 2 Corinthians, we read, Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Who's the judge at the Bema? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10 makes it clear that this examination is conducted in the presence of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. John 5.22 says, the father, has, the father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Well, who are the subjects at the Bema? In our text, Paul says we must all appear, and he is addressing believers. The fact that we are saved, that we've been born again, that we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, does not exempt us from appearing at the Bema. In fact, just the opposite is true. Because we have trusted Christ, because we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it guarantees that we will appear for the Bema of Christ. Paul 
Paul's not speaking to one group of people saying, you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's not talking to missionaries. He's not talking to sons of teachers. He's not talking to preachers. All the redeemed will appear at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. Only if you'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and just note a few things. Chapter 5, verse 1, only a person who's redeemed could have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Only a person who is redeemed, in verse 4, can speak of mortality being swallowed up of life. In verse 5, only a believer could speak of who also hath given unto us the earnest of his spirit. Only a believer could say those words in verses 6 through 8. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now what's the basis for this examination? If we say that all sin has been taken care of, why this judgment and what's the end of it? Again, this is not a... um, a judgment of a special group. And if you'll look at the text closely, you'll see now we have a, a bit of a problem here in that it seems to indicate that there's sin involved here. When Paul uses the terms good or bad, we tend to think immediately that he's talking about sins or good things that we have done. But the word may have two different connotations and does. It may mean what is morally or ethically evil. It can mean that. But here, uh, it means that which is usable and that which is not usable or worthless. So he's talking about what's usable, and we'll get to why in a moment. What is usable, what is not usable. Now, you know that um, I'm clearing out my office. I have 50 boxes stored in my garage at home. And we'll put them back in on the shelves at, at home next week. There are some pictures as well. May I illustrate with this? Suppose I've got a picture that I have taken down from the wall in my office. I take it home, take it upstairs to my small office upstairs, start to put it on the wall. And if you're going to put a picture on a wall, you need a hanger to put it on. And you need something to hang it onto. You all know what that is, don't you? Everybody does. Just put it on a wall, put your picture on it. Well, I'm in a hurry. I don't want to go out to the garage and get my toolbox, get a hammer. So I come downstairs and go through the kitchen. And I know there's a drawer in our kitchen. You have one like this? You got some tools in it that your wife wants you to get out? But you got a few tools in that drawer. Well, in my drawer at home, like that, I don't have a hammer. But there's a tool, there, there's no tool there. And that is a screwdriver. Now, I take this little hanger right here. 
I'll take the pliers, take it upstairs. And I want to put this into the wall, but I'm too lazy to go get the hammer. But I got some pliers. And so I take the pliers and try to put this into the wall so I can hang up the picture without going out to the garage to get my hammer. You know what happens? Well, you get a busted thumb to start with. <laughs> you mess up the wall, and if you're not careful, you might have to repaint the whole wall. Now, is that because there's something wrong with the pair of pliers? No, no. Pliers are perfectly good when they are used for the purpose they've been designed for. Not a thing wrong with a pair of pliers. But if you use them for the wrong thing, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. You can't convert pliers into a hammer. I will testify to that. <laughs> but they are great for the thing that they've been created for. And Paul is emphasizing that a believer may have in his life those things which are good. But in themselves, they do not serve their intended purpose. It's useless in respect to what God has in mind for that, that, that word. Now, what is God's purpose for a believer? Again, the Apostle Paul says, we are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. What's God's purpose for us? It's to glorify Him. Now, we may have things in our lives that are good things. But God has designed us to be instruments to His glory. But we can take the things that God has given to us, our abilities, our gifts, our energies, our training, and we can use them to bring honor and attention to ourselves. And when we do that, what have we done? We've taken a pair of pliers and made them into a hammer. Good things, but not for the wrong purpose. Pliers would be perfectly good for some things. As a child of God, we are to glorify Him. Now, in my illustration, there's nothing wrong with the pliers and there's nothing wrong with other things in a Christian's life. But the things in a Christian's life are to bring honor and glory to the Lord and not to us. It's possible for a man or a woman to be given spiritual gifts and abilities and opportunities to exercise those gifts and abilities but then to use them so selfishly that they bring aggrandizement to the individual and not to God. They weren't bad in and of themselves, but they did not accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish. Then the Apostle Paul says we must all appear. That word appear means turned inside out. You know, here on earth, we can hide and gloss over things that we do. But at the judgment seat of Christ, they will be judged. Everything will be turned inside out at the judgment seat of Christ. 
Here we can cover up our motives. But on that day, there'll be no covering up of motives. They'll all be turned inside out. What's the result of this examination? You might want to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Let me read. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Do you not know that you're, you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for he is the temple of God. And then he says, that's what you are, a temple of God. The answer to the question that I raised, what's the re- end result here of this examination then, is found in the word, well, there are two, actually. Uh, verse 15, if any man's work shall, shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Loss of what? His salvation? No. No. Loss of reward. There is a second result. And that's in verse 14. If it was done in accord with the will of God and for the glory of God, he shall receive a reward. If it was for his own aggrandizement, if it was to put himself or herself forward, that's not the purpose that God intended to come from a child of God. So there'd be no reward for that. But if it's done to the glory of God, and not for personal gratification, it will serve as a basis for reward. And what are the rewards? The Bible speaks of the rewards at Tabema as crowns. And the New Testament mentions five. There's an incorruptible crown for those who get mastery over the old man, 1 Corinthians 9. There's a crown of rejoicing for soul winners, 2 Corinthians 2. There's a crown of life for those enduring trials, James 1.12. There's a crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. And there's a crown of glory for those who are willing to feed the flock of God. These crowns are not given for us to keep. They will be placed before our Lord at his feet as a thank offering. So we're going to receive reward for things done to honor him, led by the Spirit, for his glory, not ours. There's going to be a reward for that, and it's in the form of crowns. But we'll not hold and hoard these crowns throughout eternity. They will be thank offerings given to the Lord. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place of judgment for sins. It is a place where the believers will stand and see their motives in the works that they've done. May I say to you, this place is a divine imperative on every child of God to know God's will and to do God's will by the power of the Holy Spirit 
and to the glory of God. Otherwise, it will not be acceptable as a basis for reward. If God has called you to be a Sunday school teacher, God will not examine you, Judge of Christ, on how many sermons you preached. If he's called you to be a Sunday school teacher, things like, did you study? Did you prepare? Did you call people when they were sick? Were you faithful in that? And those are things that will be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. If it's God's will for you to be in business, he will ask you how you conducted your business to his glory. You know, there are many Christians in business, and there are many businessmen. But in my experience, there are few Christian businessmen. If you're in business, God will bring you to the judgment seat not based on how many souls you led to the Lord, but on did you conduct your business to the glory of God. If it's God's will for you to be a homemaker, and by the way, there's a lot of nonsense that that goes around about this, but God calls people to be homemakers. There's nothing wrong with being a mom, keeping your home. Nothing wrong at all with that. But have you been faithful in the discharge of your duties in your home? That motive will be turned inside out, as will the others. Please get this straight. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God. We cannot earn salvation. You can try to keep the law. You can do all kinds of things. You can join every church in the state of North Carolina. That won't bring salvation. Salvation is entirely by the grace of God. But in heaven, rewards are based on faithfulness. May God make what was central in the life of the Apostle Paul central in my life and in yours, that we live our lives and that we may be found pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad, whether they be used, useful for reward or whether they won't be. One other note I need to add here is there are people who say that desiring a reward is wrong. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Why would God give us all these details and others too? We've only scratched the surface. Why would God give us these details if there weren't a basis for reward? And if our works weren't to be done to the glory of God and therefore be a uh, a, a legitimate basis for rewards. My friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, God offers to you salvation and He offers it as a free gift and no strings attached. It can be yours. Now, where are you in your life of faith? You're trying to lift yourself up by your bootstraps? Or have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It is a question that everyone in this room needs to answer. Pray with me, please.
Our Father, for that one in this room this morning who's never trusted Jesus personally, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts. And for those who are here who have trusted Christ, may we consider our lifestyle. Are we living and doing those things which bring honor and glory to the Lord? Or are we using the gifts and the abilities The energies that we have that have been given to us by God, are we using them to call attention to ourselves? I pray that you'd put us on the right path this morning. That those who are here, any who are here, might do business with the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these favors in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Again, God is good. All the time. Amen. Amen. You ready to pray? (laughs) Come on, brother. Thank you. God bless you. Our deacon of the day comes to dismiss us with prayer. And after that, we'll sing our closing hymn. You know what that is, don't you? We've sung it for you. All the years I've been here, and it's good. God bless you. Pray for us, brother. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for your grace gift of salvation and for your faithful servant, Ross, reminding us this morning that our true reward comes from faithfulness to your glorification and that even the crowns you give to us are given back to you in honor of your sovereignty and of your glory. Father, help us to always remember that as children of God, our primary purpose in this world is to glorify you and not ourselves. Father, we give you thanks today, especially on the anniversary of Ross and Louise Marion and their 30 years of faithful service to this congregation, to this community. And we are honored to celebrate with them that time of faithful ministry and service. And thank you for the blessings that we have known by their presence here. Father, we also are mindful today of the people of Texas and of the struggles that so many there face in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Help us, Father, to be prayerful each and every day for them. Help us to send our gifts of service and money as we're able to help their relief. And Lord, we pray for their continued uplifting by your grace, your mercy, and your peace in the days ahead. Father, our prayer concerns are numerous today, but I want to remember them by name. We just lift each one of these up to you and ask for your healing, for your peace, and for your grace. We remember this morning James Bunker, Joyce Cotton, Susan Ortiz, Billy Tew, Dave McCrary, Tom Jeremko, uh, Rosemary Smith and her family, the Sieg family, Al and Judy Pravats, new baby granddaughter, and any number, Father, of unspoken requests. We pray for our military, for those in our, our armed forces around the world, 
Please keep them, Father. We pray also for Israel, for the peace of Jerusalem. And Father, today we also are mindful of our Mission of the Week, TVR Christian Camp and Retreat Center for the wonderful outreach, for the encouragement, for the setting there that has meant so much to so many through the years and where you have spoken to so many and placed callings on the hearts of so many young people. We pray for their continued support and for their ministry. We ask that you be with us now as we leave this place and go into the world that all who see us will see reflected in our lives the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we make all this in the powerful name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.